0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Monday, November 7th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. James Comey announced he has looked into the wiener trove. Oh, God. But there was nothing there. Well, nothing as pertains to Hillary Clinton. So it was a good thing he told us he was looking. He was just being really transparent. No downside to that that I could tell. Noted forensic data recovery expert Donald Trump Expressed credulity. You can't review 650,000 new emails in eight days. You can't do it, folks. I've heard this argument a few times 650,000 divided by eight days. That's like one and a half seconds per email. James Comey cannot possibly read emails that quickly. Although, maybe he could if he had the cyber and an additional helper. I know just the guy. He's 10 years old. He has computers. He is so good with these computers. It's unbelievable. The security aspect of cyber is very, very tough, and maybe it's, it's hardly doable. No, it can be done. You can scan 650,000 emails in eight days. Step one, sort by sender. All the messages from at, at LinkedIn.com. Delete all. All right, now you're down to 150,000 emails. And remember, these were Anthony Weiner emails, sort by dick pics. So now you're down to 50,000 emails. And that's quite doable. Through the miracle of Control-F, you could look for words like classified or confidential or come quick whom I need you. Gizmodo did a report in March trying to answer the question, has Donald Trump ever touched a computer? The conclusion, probably he's probably touched a computer. Although in 2005, he said in a deposition he has never emailed. In 2013, he said by then of his emailing frequency, very rarely, but I use it. You'll find among captains of industry of a certain age, also football coaches for some reason, that never touching a computer becomes this kind of humble brag. Now, they say this election is a battle between generations or worldviews or education or employment status, but I've got to think a good proxy for who voted for Trump versus who voted for Clinton, it's got to be computer use. There's a line, I don't know, maybe it's around sending 15 emails a day. If you, on average, send more than 15 emails a day, you're probably going to vote for Hillary. And if you send fewer than 15 emails a day, you're probably a Trump supporter. Although there is some noise, like around zero emails. That's all the octogenarians, all the football coaches, and all the teenagers who exclusively use Snapchat, which if Donald Trump had chosen that as his medium of choice back on a bus in 2005, we might be talking about a different election outcome tomorrow. So, about that outcome, I am confident in a Hillary Clinton victory. I hear some of you might not be so confident. Therefore, it is time for a Trump anxiety hotline. But first, making her debut appearance on the show. So, she is the first woman named Michelle Goldberg to be a guest on The Gist Breaking Barriers, personal Michelle Goldberg barriers. Here's Michelle Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg, who covers politics for Slate. She's been uh, crushing it on issues that really have been central to the campaign, everything from groping to standing up and fighting for children. Hello, Michelle, welcome to The
0: Gist. Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Can you imagine, you probably have imagined, let's take the mirror image of what was going on in terms of who's backing which candidate. And let's say women and minorities were backing the candidate as awful and unqualified as Trump, right? What would the blowback from white male America be
0: would you imagine? Well, I think I cannot quite imagine, but I, there's one thing I feel like we can say for certain, which is that we would not see a lot of tenderly crafted portraits of their malaise mm-hmm. and their kind of the desperation okay. that has brought them to this pass where they are, you know, rallying behind this psychotic demagogue. Right? right. You wouldn't the kind of tone of the coverage wouldn't be all about how we have to understand and sympathize and feel. And feel for their their desperation it would be that these people have gone feral and can't be trusted to make good political decisions
1: right so i was trying to think who would that trump figure be and the easy thing to do although unfair to her would be let's say it was oprah and let's say oprah revealed herself to be far more ignorant than we think oprah is
0: yeah but it can't be oprah no, it, mean, has be it, 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 it has to be
1: a reality show it have to be kim, a real it be, house it life. would be
0: kim kardashian she actually is a self-made not self-made businesswoman she's a a rich girl who became even richer through her own feats of self-promotion um, who's sort of vapid. And, I mean, even that comparison is maybe not totally fair to, dump to to Kim Kardashian, right? Because we don't know if she has any particularly extreme political positions. Right, well, if it was but- Kim, a,
1: a hypothetical Kim Kardashian or I was thinking some real housewife, right? But it would have to be bigger than any one real housewife was. But someone like that who then demonstrates just, you know... Uh, horrible policy positions and a uh, affinity for some random foreign dictator. It would, If the analogy would hold, it would be the most dangerous foreign dictator around. And then I think you're right. We wouldn't be saying, well, let's understand these deluded women. Let's understand these deluded members of minority populations. You know, they've had it so hard. And I think, Part of that, I, I mean, I think it's a good instinct to try to understand the motivations of people who are in favor of Trump. But I do think to some extent we have over explained that it is due to bad economic times. And these are disaffected the the cre of the disaffected right. blue collar for so many reasons.
0: Well, so. You're right. We should always. I think you, know, you should try to understand everyone. You know, I mean, yeah. you should try to understand Islamic terrorists. You should try to understand people who commit terrible crimes. That's right. That's part of the duty of journalists. I also think that very often we're not listening to what these people are saying. Right? If there's a kind of a tendency, you know, they say "build the wall" and we say, "Are you really upset about that plant closing?" And they say, "Like, you know, I." I hate affirmative action. And you say like, well, you must be really suffering economically. So I can give you an example. I was, you know, I went to North Carolina last week, um, my last swing on the campaign trail. And I went to a Trump rally in this rural part of North Carolina. And like everyone else, you know, I've met people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump at various rallies. And you know, find them really interesting, and to some extent, they sort of prove the economic anxiety theory of this whole election, or the but charismatic candidate theory. That's true. So I was, I was, I was talking to um, a thirty-year-old who had voted for Obama and was now voting, not just voting for Trump, but at this rally, and I asked him, you know, what changed about your economic situation. And the thing that had changed about his economic situation is that he was about to inherit a business on which he did not want to pay a lot of taxes. Um, so he, you know, was saying that, you know, my parents bought this piece of land for $100,000. If it's worth a million dollars, why should I have to pay tax on the 900000 And I said, why Why shouldn't? Why is that unjust? And he said, well, I just don't want to pay it. Mm-hmm. And then he said that he had also heard that Hillary Clinton's Secret Service people call her a bitch. And so, You know, this isn't about he's just one person. But I feel like very often, you know, I've been to a lot of Trump rallies and the people I talk to in general are not, um, you know, they're they're kind of successful small businessmen. Maybe they've seen their community um, decline a little bit, but they themselves, by and large, are not in dire straits. And they are very upset about changing demographics And they also have a whole kind of demonology of Hillary Clinton that, I mean, it's not just delusional, but it also kind of is revealing of a lot of underlying gender anxieties.
1: Well, George Saunders wrote that really excellent piece in The New Yorker where he found that he would talk to the people at Trump rallies before Trump got on stage. And it was was really interesting conversations. Then when Trump got on stage, forget it. It was just screaming emotion. They they become different people.
0: Right. And it's also – there's also only so far you can get talking to somebody when you have so little um, common reality and when, you know, kind of –
1: We're siloed in our own fact uh, realities. yeah.
0: Right. And when all of your assumptions about the way the world works and kind of trusted sources of authority, I mean, there's just – it's very, very difficult to – you know, people are very nice, right? I mean, people have asked me, are you scared to go to Trump rallies? and they will yell at the press pen as a group. Yeah. Right. But you individually going up to someone, um, people are usually perfectly nice. Um, you can read too much into the fact that people are pretty nice. Right. Yeah. I mean, people, people can be nice and
1: like take away your right to have an abortion or earn an equal wage or very nicely or totally erode uh, everything uh, our society's fought for. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um There's a piece of this where, you know, we were talking about, let's try to understand the economically disaffected and how that manifests itself in the Trump vote. And Jamel Bowie, uh, Slate's chief political writer has done a good deal to demonstrate, you know, when we talk about blue collar, that's actually blue collar workers are very black and brown, disproportionately black and brown. So when we talk about the people who are affected by things like plant closing, it's not like there aren't women that are part of that. In fact, in the rural areas, there are as many women as men. Sure, men might have actually been working in the plant. But if the breadwinner of the family loses the job, then the woman, the woman has lost uh, a source of income. And Hillary still leads by about 20 among women. So this is another reason why the economic dissatisfaction doesn't really explain everything that's going on with the Trump I mean, I
0: think it explains part of it in that the economic dissatisfaction is tied to a dissatisfaction with what you said, you know, no longer being the breadwinner, right? Mm -hmm. So it's economic dissatisfaction tied to both globalization and to kind of changes in the relative status of men and women and the way... Right, which you know, I think that on the one hand we should, you know, all sympathize with people who are suffering and I think it is a genuinely excruciating thing to lose your status or to feel your status declining even if that status was in some ways unearned. Mm-hmm. Um again, I think you know sympathy itself is always a good thing, but it's been so disproportionate in terms of we're so sympathetic to these white men who are trying to do a horrible thing to our country and there's much less i've seen much less reporting you know and in some ways i'm at fault for this i haven't done a ton of reporting i've done some about the communities who are the victims of all this and kind of how they feel and where's all the um empathetic outreach to them
1: well i'll I'll tell you the press's explanation of the trump appeal as a consequence of the dissatisfaction that is how a rational-minded liberal would interpret it right if there is to be a rational explanation this is it but there are explanations that are explicable and yet not rational there's an often emotional explanation the feeling that someone and this is like this has defined Trump from the beginning, the feeling that someone else is getting over on you.
0: Well, I think it's a feeling, but there's also, you know, there's the material reality of white men losing their monopoly on all the good jobs, white men losing their monopoly on power within the family and the country. I mean, that's a that's a real thing. And, you know, those grievances might be painful, but they don't deserve any sort of actual Redress, right? Like, I think, you know, liberals, I think, are willing to grant all of the kind of conservative white working classes, economic grievances, and none of their cultural grievances. And yet, what they show over and over again, um, both when you talk to people and in the political decisions they make are that the cultural grievances are really important to them.
1: Is Hillary Rodham Clinton underperforming where a generic Democratic uh, nominee who's a woman might be performing?
0: Oh, I was actually going to say yes until you said who's a woman.
1: Right, right, right. Um,
0: like, I think that, yes, yeah, she's underperforming probably relative to a. It's very hard for me to imagine a woman coming up in the sort of meteoric way that that Barack Obama did, you know, and kind of not having this like long slog in public life through which, you know, during which you necessarily accumulate some sort of baggage. And then also some of her baggage just with regard to her people disliking her or regarding her as untrustworthy. A lot of that, I think, is just that's how people feel about women who are in public life. And I'm sure people listening to this are going to say, no, I, no, it's just Hillary. And it's very difficult to disentangle how much of it is just Hillary. But we do know that these all the words that are used to describe Hillary are kind of again and again, just used to describe, you know, women leaders in business when they're asked about them. They were used to describe the saintly Elizabeth Warren when she ran for Senate. And, you know, and that was in Massachusetts in a you know much friendlier territory, much smaller scale. And yet people felt, they said they didn't, they didn't think she was trustworthy. They thought she was a liar. They thought she was cold, remote, unlikable. Everything that they say about Hillary Clinton, um, They also said about Elizabeth Warren and that was absent the sort of, you know, barrage of attacks that she's been subject to and that any woman in her position would be subject to. So I just I have a hard time kind of conjuring up that, that counterfactual.
1: Well, my pushback on that would be it's hard to imagine Barack Obama before a Barack Obama, some one-term senator who gives a great speech and we all get behind him and elect him and he's the first black president. Like, if that didn't actually happen, it would be hard to imagine it happening. There's some sort of hypothetical future where Kamala Harris or... um. Kirsten Gillibrand or someone give some great speech at a convention, though, Gillibrand has had her opportunity and and hasn't done that. But, you know, you can imagine someone sort of catching fire, although your point is, ah, but if you look at every woman, they get tagged with this baggage.
0: Right. And I think that we can't kind of know what sort of baggage they would be tagged with until they were on the national stage Mm -hmm. for a while, even if that was just to be on the national stage as a serious presidential contender.
1: Do you think that Hillary Clinton when she is elected, does it break the glass ceiling for others?
0: You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I mean, my guess is, is that probably not for a while, you know, in part because I, you know, I think that women will probably watch what a degrading slog this was and kind of what a debasing spectacle. And I can't imagine that it's going to inspire a new generation of people to want to go into politics, at least in the short term. I think that long term, um, it could change how we envision what a powerful person looks like and just kind of gradually change people's expectations. And it could also, um, you know, Hillary Hillary Clinton is very likely to have an unprecedentedly diverse cabinet. She's going to have a lot of women in power. She's going to I think, make policies that have women's interests foremost. And so it will, I think, change the idea about like who government is for Mm -hmm. and put women's interests, you know, kind of turn women's interests not into a kind of special interest group, but into the the central concern of government because they're more than half the population.
1: If you look at the party breakdown for women, the Senate has 20 female senators, 14 Democrats, six Republican. The House has 84 uh, total women, and it's 62 Democrat, 22 Republican. There is an opportunity for Republican women to gain ground in a way much more than Democratic women.
0: I guess, but that would presume, I think, a real remaking of the Republican Party, right? Because what you're seeing right now is Republican women being a kind of unprecedented, you know, feeling unprecedented alienation from their own party. And I think a lot is going to depend on how the Republican Party chooses to proceed and whether it has some sort of internal reckoning and tries to win back all of these Republican women who have kind of turned their back on it, um, or whether it decides that the future is with the base and with Trumpism. I mean, the the degree of kind of hard feelings there, at least among Republican women that I've talked to, is real there's there's a profound sense of betrayal there. And, you know, a profound sense of just disgust. And so the Republican Party, I think, will have to do a lot of internal house cleaning before it can recruit a bunch of women to run for congress well who would a republican say would be better to clean house
1: <laughs> <laughs> michelle goldberg covers politics for slate this was her debut appearance we're gonna have her back i think i think she she earned her stripes so you broke this glass ceiling this personal glass ceiling of one thank you so much michelle thank you And now the spiel. It is the last Trump Anxiety Hotline. Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline.
0: Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline. Trump is one up in Ohio. Trump is one up in Florida. They said he can't win without winning these states, but he's leading. He's going to win these states. What are we going to do?
1: He may win there. Oh, yes, he may. He is up by one or two points in different polls. Reports out of Florida in terms of early voting seem good for the Democrats, though, because there were 2.56 million Democratic ballots cast as opposed to 2.47 million Republican ballots. But hold on, because Democrats tend to vote early. And when you compare it to 2012 voting, the Democrats' lead's actually smaller. So that winds up being bad news for the Florida Democrats. But hold on, hold on. A closer analysis of voters who are Republican today, but were Democrats back in 2012, indicates some interesting stuff. Mark Caputo of Politico interprets this as being that there are people who really were Republicans in their souls, even back in 2012, and might not have voted for Obama. They voted for Romney in 2012 also. They just got around to changing their registration. But I could think of a lot of other plausible interpretations. So just let the record show that what this means is that Florida really is, like the polls say, extremely close, even when you take early voting into account. The polls say 50-50. Upshot says Clinton has a 66% chance of winning. 538 says a 51% chance of winning. And Ohio is close too. But here's the thing about Florida and Ohio. Necessary and sufficient. Yes, it's necessary For Donald Trump to win these states. But if he does, it's far from sufficient. Whereas if Hillary wins either state, that'll be sufficient. She'll be president. But it is not necessary. Think of Ohio and Florida as slats of wood. Trump can build a life raft from them. If Hillary wins, she could use them to complete Trump's coffin. All right, next call. Hi, uh, Trump Anxiety Hotline. This is Jason in Florida. What about that poll they were talking about on ABC this week, last week? You know, the ABC Washington Post poll that said Trump was up by four. That was right
0: after the FBI investigation thing became front page news. Well, now they've dropped the investigation. But what happens if people don't notice?
1: Yeah, what about that? I talked about that one on the Gist last week. About 20 mentions on ABC's This Week of that poll that showed Trump up by one. Even though a few weeks prior, it showed Hillary up, and a week or two before that, it showed Hillary up by double digits. Well, the latest poll, that very same poll, shows Hillary up about 4% points now, I say about, because it's different from the head-to-head race and the four-way race. So, with Hillary up 4, it must have been the talk of ABC's This Week, right? Nope, was not mentioned. Overtaken by events, I guess they say. Doesn't matter in the grand scope of things, but hey, thanks for asking. All right, next question. Hello.
0: This is Paul
1: calling from Racine, Wisconsin. Just wondering, once this whole thing is over, what do you think is going to happen to the Republican Party? Like, theoretically, are they going to split into two parties? Or maybe they'll just try to purge the Trump supporters? I'm just curious. Just wondering what you would do in this situation. Okay, thanks. I don't think, thank you, Paul. I don't think the Republicans will reform. And here's why. One, they're not incentivized to do so. The congressional strategy of obstruct at every point yields results for them. And two, to get it through their skulls that they have done something wrong, they need more than one data point. And it's easy to excuse Donald Trump as a data point from delirium. You just throw it out and say it doesn't matter. Now, if over and over again, it can be demonstrated that they have uh, adopted a course of action that is anathema to actually holding power, maybe reform could be hoped for. But you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a midterm election. And the party out of power in the White House usually does well in a midterm election add to that, that the map in 2018 is really good for Republicans because it includes a lot of Democrats who were elected on Obama's coattails in 2012. Remember, every six years is a Senate election. So the Republicans will do pretty well. They'll say Donald Trump was an anomaly and they'll continue on with their disastrous habit of nominating someone for the president who pretty much can't win. Next question. Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline. This is Nathaniel in New York. Uh, 538 has Trump at a 35% chance, and even if you don't believe them, the betting markets have Trump at a 20% chance. And that's not nothing, that's definitely something. It's something, but it ain't much. I've heard this phrase, I've been refreshing 538, and that's shorthand for, I'm so anxious, I need reassurance, I need empirical reassurance. Unfortunately for you, 538 is the least reassuring model. It doesn't mean it's the best or worst model, it is just the most bullish on Donald Trump. It's an honest model, I know its programmers want it to be accurate, but I do not think it has been as accurate as it could be. It's pretty good at parsing the polling data, but it does not, and we talked about this with Harry on Friday, it does not take into account early voting data. And without taking into account early voting data, in the last three or four days before an election, the 538 model really marks itself as not on the cutting edge of knowledge. I know 538 knows this. I know they're going to build a better model next year, but I'm just saying, I really think Hillary Clinton has a better than 65% chance to win the presidency. Let's just take Nevada. Early voting in Nevada strongly indicates that Clinton won. You know, in 2012, Obama's team knew it already won Nevada because of how they voted. But 538 says Clinton has only a 54% chance to win Nevada. If you look at the betting markets, right, people who whose money is on the line, their percent chance that Clinton wins Nevada is 85%. Without Nevada, Trump is in a lot of trouble. Even with Nevada, he's in trouble too. But he didn't get Nevada. I don't think. I could be wrong. If I am, we'll just rerecord all these segments and dub in the phrase, hello, Trump false reassurance hotline, and that should cover most things. I do have one final thought. As I have been manning the phones at this call center As I've sat under these fluorescent lights, which are really unflattering, especially with my combination skin, I have thought this thought. I do not really care if you feel better. Keeping it 1600 calls the people of little faith the bedwetters. That's funny. But then I search my soul and I realize there is a reason why I occasionally update this pot of coffee here at the Trump Anxiety Hotline. And it is this. First of all, the stakes are high. Second of all, I do think this race has been portrayed as being closer than it is. I don't think the reasons are always nefarious. Like, I think 538's model is its model. I do think there are some dishonest reasons why you've been made to be nervous, like the media bias towards drama. Third factor... Hotline callers often don't have jobs that allow or even require them to call through data to find better insight into this, you know, razor-thin election, as a CNN headline would have you believe. I actually happen to be contractually obligated to look at all those sites and all that data. So I figure it's a good thing to share what I've learned. And four... I recognize that I have that thing, that genetic thing that I've talked about where I don't really experience anxiety, but I have seen anxiety. It it doesn't strike me on a gut level, but I understand it on an intellectual level. And I know anxiety can be discomforting. So I don't think the anxiety is warranted and I do want to alleviate it. But I also know this. Anxiety can be good. It keeps people interested. It gets them to take action, to vote. Anxiety is a lot better than apathy. Also, I think that the release of anxiety upon election night will help the healing. Just that relief alone might garner Hillary Clinton more support than her legendarily high unfavorable ratings might suggest. The big thing is I understand drama. Drama is built from conflict, and when it crests, it results in a release of anxiety. So if there were no anxiety, there'd be less drama. And if everyone thought the election were over already and Hillary's just going to waltz to victory, there wouldn't be that whoop, that rush, that excitement, and we're going to need that injection of endorphins and dopamine. We, we're, we are going to need that wherever we can get it over the next four years. Because no matter who is in the White House, the Congress will be most likely in an obstructionist mood. The Senate might be no better. And now we've got an emboldened alt-right. Now we've got characters like Jeffrey Lord out there seeking to punditize for money. A lot of people are going to be plenty upset. And I do not know if for them, an anxiety hotline's going to do the trick. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson spotted wearing a T-shirt that said, Exercise Your Franchise. It turned out to be a free giveaway sponsored by owner and operators of Living Well Lady locations in the tri-state area. Just producer Chris Berube, Canadian, cannot vote in America. But if this doesn't violate election laws, he promises to swap a vote with an American who would rather cast a ballot for Justin Trudeau or any Toronto Maple Leaf All-Star nominee. Steve Liktai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He thinks the Living Well Lady joke would have worked better as a Curves for Women reference. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of Panoply, points out that almost all Curves for Women are now vape stores. Given the pendulum, terias are next. The gist, reminding you that polls stay open late for, quote, certain people. But for certain others, the American non-voter... They never open at all. Sad. depuru And thanks for listening.